My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Harry's Razors. I've been using Harry's Razors for over a year now, way before they ever sponsored the show, and I really think they're great. They offer a smooth, comfortable shave at a very affordable price. In fact, Harry's founders got so sick of paying for expensive razors with lots of unnecessary features, so they decided to buck the system and buy their own razor factory that's been making high-quality blades for 95 years. By selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's is able to offer their razors to you for about $2 per blade. That's about half the price of your average blade from some of the other name-brand razor companies. But you don't have to take my word for it. Not only are Harry's razors really excellent quality and offer a great shave, but they also offer a quality guarantee that if you don't love your shave, if you let Harry's know within 30 days, they'll give you a full refund. Right now, listeners to The Conspirators can get a really nifty trial shaving set with everything you'll need to get started, including a razor, shave gel, extra blades, and a travel cover. Listeners of my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com TC. That's harrys.com T C. And let them know I sent you to help support the podcast. And now, on with the show. Alfred Hitchcock had a problem. The year was 1959, and although the director was riding high on a string of hits, like Vertigo and North by Northwest, as well as a successful TV show bearing his name, Paramount Pictures was balking at funding his latest project. It was a thriller based on a novel his assistant had recommended to him, although the studio had already rejected the book as unsuitable because of its lurid content even before Hitchcock bought the rights and attached his name to the project. Hitchcock tried to coax the studio into greenlighting the film when he told them he could film it quickly and cheaply in black and white by using the team from his Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. Even then, the Paramount executives weren't keen on allowing this particular story to be filmed because of the book's content. But Hitchcock was not easily denied. He also had significant pull in Hollywood. His movies brought in a lot of money, so they couldn't flat out tell him no. Paramount even went so far as to tell Hitchcock all their sound stages were booked, which was a blatant lie. He finally told the studio he'd finance the film himself if Paramount would just agree to distribute it. Then he gave up his usual $250,000 director's fee in exchange for a 60% stake in the film negative. Finally, the studio gave in, and the movie was greenlit. It turned out to be the right move, because the film proved to be a massive hit with audiences, and it made millions of dollars for Hitchcock personally. That movie, of course was Psycho. When Psycho was released in 1960, critics were initially lukewarm on the story of Norman Bates, a madman who murders a secretary named Marion Crane who steals money from her employer and comes to stay at his secluded motel. Norman commits his crime while assuming the persona of his deceased mother, whose body he has preserved through his hobby as a taxidermist. 
But even though critics were initially mixed on the film, audiences went crazy for it, with lines wrapped around the block. The enormous box office returns would eventually prompt reconsideration by the critics and lead to four Academy Award nominations, including one for Janet Leigh as Best Supporting Actress and another for Hitchcock as Best Director. The film, which is widely considered today by many to be Hitchcock's masterpiece, is also thought to be the earliest example of the modern slasher film. Much of the film's power comes from its ability to undermine the viewer's sense of stability in the world. Up to a certain point, everything about the story and locale just seems so... normal. The film begins like a fairly low-key crime story. Right up until the moment Hitchcock pulls the proverbial rug out from under you. Hitch purposely hired a well-known actress in Janet Lee in order to make it even more shocking to audiences, when the person everyone believed to be the film's star gets abruptly murdered midway through the film. Hitchcock was a magician in that regard. And from the moment the infamous shower scene ends and we see Janet Lee's blood spiraling down the drain, the viewer is left shaken by the knowledge that everything they thought they knew was wrong. As the credits rolled and people stepped back into daylight, it was as if they had woken from a particularly disturbing nightmare. But of all the ways Psycho managed to shock people, there's perhaps nothing more disturbing than one particular fact about the film. It was inspired by a true story. I'm Nate Hale, and in the words of Norman Bates, we all go a little mad sometimes. And this is The Conspirators. In 1849, a transplanted New Englander named Elijah Waterman built a 12 by 6 shanty for himself smack dab in the middle of rural Wisconsin. For a while, that shanty would serve as both the man's home as well as the area's only hotel. Elijah Waterman christened the place where he set down roots after the Vermont town where he was born. He called it Plainfield, and over the next three decades, a full-fledged town would grow all around his little shack including several churches, three general stores, a bank, a drugstore, and even a weekly newspaper. The population would always remain small, never rising above a thousand people or so. Most of the people who did move to the village eked out a meager existence farming the dry, rocky soil. Potato farming was big around those parts, as was farming rye or raising livestock. Despite the isolation and relative poverty most people lived in, the community considered itself a decent, God-fearing place, where old-fashioned values thrived, and everyone knew everyone. Plainfield was a nice place to live. Nothing terrible could ever happen there. Well, almost nothing. The village did have its fair share of accidents and natural disasters. Tornadoes, savage thunderstorms, and blizzards occasionally ravaged the area. Every once in a while, someone might get shot in a hunting accident or maimed by some farm equipment. For decades, the village only had one murder of note, and that dated all the way back to 1853 when a feud over some land between a local man named Furman and another fellow named Cartwright finally came to blows and ended when Cartwright got hold of a gun and shot Furman to death. After that, it would be over a full century before the name Ed Gein finally overshadowed the names of Furman and Cartwright and made the sleepy village famous for all the wrong reasons. Back in 1879, a three-year-old boy named George Gein was left orphaned after his mother, father, and older sister were all swept away by the Mississippi River during a flash flood. 
Afterwards, he lived with his maternal grandparents, Scottish immigrants who lived on a farm in rural Wisconsin. By the time he was fully grown, George Gein left his grandparents' farm behind and seemed set on a course of aimless drifting. He apprenticed for a little while as a blacksmith, then tried his hand at selling insurance, then carpentry, then working at a tannery, then a local power plant, and from there working on the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad. In fact, it seemed like the only thing George ever stuck with throughout his life was drinking. George had a habit of heading straight from whatever job he was working to the local saloon and drinking away his paycheck. When he was drunk, which was often, he was prone to falling into black moods of self-pity over his string of personal failures. Which makes it all the more difficult to figure out whatever it was that Augusta Lerke saw in him. She came from a large family of German immigrants who settled in La Crosse, Wisconsin back in 1870. Augusta was a force to be reckoned with, a harsh, serious-minded woman, and she led her life by a strict moral code shaped by her Christian upbringing and her strict disciplinarian of a father. It's possible Augusta wasn't fully aware of George's alcoholism or lack of ambition when they first met. It's also been speculated that Augusta recognized George as exactly the sort of weak-willed individual she could make do whatever she wanted. They were wed on December 4th, 1899. It didn't take long before the relationship soured and Augusta began to voice her utter loathing for her husband. She called him a lazy dog right to his face, and insults even worse than that. She hated his lack of ambition, and hated even more George's inability to hold down a job. When she realized how much of his paychecks he was drinking away at the local bars, it sent her into a rage. George, in turn, endured all his wife's insults by drawing even more deeply inside himself. There were stretches that could go on for days where he wouldn't speak a single word to her. Eventually, George decided he couldn't take any more of Augusta's verbal abuse, and he began lashing back at her with his fists. Whenever George beat Augusta afterwards, she would get down on her knees and pray for her husband's death. It should come as no surprise that both because of her strictly religious upbringing, along with her utter loathing of George, that sex was something that was almost unheard of in the relationship. To Augusta, the world was full of shameless harlots out to spread sin and disease. Yet despite her beliefs, George and Augusta's marriage produced two sons, Henry and Edward. It's believed that after suffering what she saw as the great misfortune of having her first boy Henry in 1902, that Augusta set her sights on having a proper little girl she could raise as her own. But when she gave birth a second time on August 27, 1906, she couldn't disguise her disappointment when she produced another son, young Edward Theodore. Augusta took her second child being a boy as a personal betrayal, but she was a practical woman and she refused to allow herself to sink into despair. She promised herself that this newborn would be raised right by her, a good, God-fearing child in his mother's image. In 1909, George became the proprietor of a small meat and grocery shop in La Crosse. But within a couple of years, Augusta assumed legal ownership of the place, and George was relegated to working as a store clerk. Much of what we know of Augusta comes from the recollections of Ed Gein himself. Often when he was questioned about her, he'd choke up from the memory of her. He recalled once when he was a small boy when he almost fell down a flight of steps. Only Augusta was right there behind him to snatch him back to safety. From then on, Ed always relied on his mother to rescue him from life's dangers. 
Ed Gein had one other powerful memory of his mother from when he was young. Out beyond the tiny grocery store his parents ran, there was a windowless wooden outbuilding where he wasn't allowed to enter. But Eddie was a child, and he was curious. And he was absolutely certain he'd seen animals being led into the building, mostly pigs and wide-eyed cows. Only they never came back out. So little Eddie Gein went to investigate by sneaking around back and peeking through a crack in the door. There he saw a massive hog hanging upside down from a chain attached to the ceiling. Next to that hog stood his father to one side of the animal, and his mother on the other side wielding a large knife that she used to slice the pig open down the length of its belly. Ed was simultaneously fascinated and horrified by the gouts of blood and ropes of shiny intestines that fell out of the pig's carcass. Ed must have made a noise because his mother spun around and stared right at him. That was one of Ed Gein's most powerful memories from childhood. Locking eyes with his mother as she stood there in a blood-stained apron wielding a long knife. In 1913, Augusta made the decision that the family was going to give up the store and become farmers. She'd managed to save enough to purchase a small dairy farm about 40 miles east of La Crosse. Although they only stayed there for just under a year... The following year in 1914, Augusta packed up their family once more, and this time settled on a 195-acre farm in the village of Plainfield. The land contained a two-story L-shaped farmhouse that suited Augusta perfectly. Much like Augusta herself, the place was plain, sturdy, and practical. The Gein family led a simple existence there. They never had money to add indoor plumbing or wire the place for electricity, so they used an outhouse and lit the place by oil lamps and candlelight. Augusta was fiercely proud of how neat she kept the place. A place for everything, and everything in its place was the motto she lived by. Something else Augusta loved about the farmhouse was its total isolation. The farm was six miles away from the village proper, and their nearest neighbor was about a quarter mile up the road. But with all the meadows and marshlands surrounding the place, they could have been a million miles away from the next nearest person. And that's just how Augusta liked it. She grew to believe that all her neighbors were just shiftless lowlifes, and that none of them could live up to her exacting standards. The village of Plainfield boasted three different churches, Catholic, Baptist, and Methodist. But since there was no Lutheran church, her own chosen denomination, Augusta took it upon herself to handle her son's moral and religious upbringing. When he turned eight, Ed Gein began attending the local grade school. He was a pretty average student for the most part, although he did turn out to be a particularly good reader. Books and magazines were a lifelong obsession with Ed. He was shy and awkward around the other children. And aside from his mother, books were Ed's only companion. On the rare occasions when it seemed like he might make an actual friend, Augusta was there to step in and inform him of everything that was wrong with his new chum and why he was forbidden from associating with him. They were always from a questionable family or were too far down on the social ladder to possibly associate with someone of Eddie's caliber. Augusta would make her point by laying into Ed with the same sort of angry tongue-lashing she'd reserve for her no-good layabout of a husband. Most of the other children thought young Ed Gein was odd. The way he'd stare silently at them with that curious lopsided grin of his. His strange habit of laughing uncontrollably at inappropriate moments. Sometimes some of the girls in class would catch Ed staring at them intently in a way that made them feel uneasy. Ed Gein had a soft, fleshy growth over his left eyelid that caused his eye to droop. Once a group of boys began making fun of his appearance, 
and Ed Gein began to sob like a little girl. To Ed Gein, the cruel taunting and the way the other children whispered about him behind his back only confirmed everything his mother said about them. Life on the farm wasn't any easier. It was a difficult, hard-scrabble existence, and the farm never seemed to produce enough to keep them afloat. Couple that with George Gein's constant drinking and alcoholic rampages, and Ed Gein and his older brother Henry grew up in a state of perpetual misery. Throughout most of Ed Gein's life, his mother Augusta was his only friend and companion. As he grew older, she became increasingly fixated on pointing out to Ed how all other women were wicked creatures. Why, just look at the pictures of the harlots they were putting in magazines these days, with their painted faces and short skirts. You didn't even have to look far to see some real examples of the sort of women Augusta warned Ed about. Some of the worst examples of all could be found just a few miles away in Plainfield. Augusta made each of her sons swear they would remain uncontaminated by women. The brothers swore to their mother they'd remain pure and avoid lustful thoughts. On the rare occasion when Ed or Henry made even a meager attempt to socialize with a member of the opposite sex, Augusta was right there to jump in and cut that sort of behavior off immediately. There was only one woman who would ever be in the boys' lives, their loving mother. By 1940, a lifetime of drinking and domestic misery finally took its toll on George Gein. He died on April 1st of that year. It was no great loss to the family since they'd all but given up on the man years earlier. But even with the burden of George gone, life remained difficult for the remaining Gein clan. Over time, the once neatly kept farmhouse began to look weathered and decrepit. In 1942, World War II was raging and the then 36-year-old Ed Gein made the 130-mile journey to Milwaukee to take his physical exam for the draft. But the army doctor rejected him because of the growth over his eyelid, which slightly impaired his vision. Back in Plainfield, Ed picked up odd jobs around town working as a handyman, mostly patching roofs and mending fences. He even did some babysitting for the local children. The kids liked the simple magic tricks Ed performed for them, or the times when he'd tell them strange stories about cannibal headhunters or other things he read about in the men's adventure magazines he loved. As a child, Ed never felt comfortable around his peers, but as a grown man, he felt right at home among the children. Although Ed remained living and working right around town, his older brother Henry began branching out more and more. He got a job working for a road-building contractor, setting poles and stringing wires that kept taking him farther and farther from town. Henry was no doubt the more independent of the two brothers. On more than one occasion, he actually dared question the hold Augusta had over Ed. And whereas he would never do anything quite so daring as to argue directly to her face, he would on more than one occasion question her judgment behind your back. This was something Ed found appalling. How could anyone ever question someone as loving and perfect as Mother? On Tuesday, May 16, 1944, tragedy struck the Gein farm. A mysterious fire broke out in some marshlands near the Gein home. Ed would later tell authorities that his brother Henry had deliberately lit the blaze to get rid of some dry grass when it grew out of control. According to Ed, a strong wind whipped the flames throughout the marsh. The two men struggled to contain the blaze before it lit the nearby woods on fire. Somehow, Eddie and Henry became separated. Ed said he went looking for his brother, but by then it had grown dark and he couldn't see him anymore. He decided he needed to enlist the aid of a search party in order to help find him. He went into town and got the deputy sheriff and some others to help look for Henry. But as soon as the men arrived on the scene, Ed led them straight back to an area of the marsh where his older brother's corpse was lying face down in the dirt. Even though the body was stretched out on a patch of scorched earth, 
there were no burns on the body or signs that Henry had been injured by the flames. Also, no one seemed to find it suspicious that Henry had some funny bruises on his head, or that even though Ed claimed he couldn't find Henry anywhere, he still led them directly to the body. The county coroner's report listed Henry's official cause of death as asphyxiation. No further investigation was done, and no one ever seriously considered foul play in the man's death. The idea that meek, mild-mannered Ed Gein could have ever murdered his own brother was simply ridiculous. Finally, Ed Gein had Augusta all to himself. Nothing would ever come between them now. But things took a turn for the worse when shortly after Henry's funeral, Augusta suffered a stroke that left her weak and unable to walk. From that point on, the tables were turned and Ed Gein was forced to step up and take care of his mother, rather than the other way around. Henry fed her and cleaned her, and sat by her bedside reading to her from the Bible. For a little while, Augusta seemed to regain her strength, but then on December 29, 1945, Ed's mother suffered a second stroke that finally took her life at age 67. Ed Gein was inconsolable. At the funeral, he wept like a baby with tears and snot smearing his face. He didn't care how he looked to everyone. The entire center of his universe was gone. His rock, his only friend, his one true love. Ed returned to the farmhouse and for the next dozen years he lived alone. He continued to pick up occasional work as a handyman, but he completely gave up on working the farm or caring for the house at all. The front yard became overgrown with weeds, and the woods began to reclaim the pastures all around. Ed sold the last few head of livestock in order to pay for his mother's funeral. Unused farm equipment was left to slowly rust in the yard. Ed didn't care. He lived simply and had meager needs, and he managed to make a few bucks by leasing a few acres of land to neighboring farmers. Although the locals still thought of Ed as odd, they also felt a little sorry for him as well. It was well known how dependent he'd been on his mother, and how deeply her death had affected him. The people that hired Ed thought of him as a hard worker, and one of the most dependable people you could hire if you needed a job done. Occasionally, one of the people who hired Ed would invite him to stay for dinner. Sometimes Ed would stare fixedly at the farmer's wife or daughters, his mouth twisting up into that curious lopsided smile of his. But if one of the girls ever tried staring back at Ed, he'd practically jump out of his own skin and turn shyly away. There were other curious things about Ed, too. Sometimes you'd be talking to him, and he'd tell you nonchalantly about some horrific death he'd read about in one of his men's adventure or true crime magazines. He developed a particular fixation about stories of Nazi atrocities, like those committed by the infamous Ilsa Koch, also known as the Bitch of Buchenwald, who was notorious for collecting human heads and turning human skin into lampshades. Other times he might make some casual remark about how plump a woman looked, or how she reminded him of his mother. Then there were even darker rumors about Ed and his creepy old farm. A lot of the local kids thought the place was haunted and tried to avoid it at all cost. One story spread that a couple of boys actually tried bravely sneaking onto the property one night, and they swore they saw Augusta Gein herself prancing around the front yard, even though the woman had been dead and buried for years. On another occasion, a neighbor boy told everyone that Ed invited him into his home and showed him a collection he had of authentic shrunken heads he said a relative who served in the Pacific sent him as a gift he'd gotten from some tropical island. But all this was still just gossip and hearsay. Up until that point, no one had any reason to suspect anything sinister about Ed Gein. Everybody 
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Along with his fascination with stories of cannibals and Nazis, Ed found other macabre interests in things he read about. At one time, he developed an interest in the stories of the 18th and 19th century grave robbers known as Resurrection Men. That led him to stories about Egyptian mummification practices, and from there to modern taxidermy. He also had a large collection of clippings from newspapers of obituary notices and articles about car accidents and mysterious disappearances. Then one day he came across a story he read in one of his magazines about a former GI who traveled to Denmark in order to receive a sex change operation. Ed was entranced by this idea. Ever since Ed was a boy, he'd dreamed about what it would be like to be a girl. He sought out every story he could find about sex change operations. But the stories Ed read weren't enough to fill the hole inside him that was left after his mother died. Ed was lonely, and what he felt he needed most was companionship so he began going out at night to find it. Ed was never much of a drinker, but he would have a beer now and then. He began hanging around Mary Hogan's tavern in town. Mary was a 200-pound German immigrant who bore an unmistakable resemblance to Ed's deceased mother. But the resemblance was only skin deep. Whereas Augusta was a saintly and proper Christian woman, Mary was twice divorced with a foul mouth and rumors about a shady past that included connections to the Chicago mob. Then on December 8, 1954, a customer dropped into Mary Hogan's tavern and discovered signs that something terrible had occurred. The place was deserted, and there was a large bloodstain on the floor with a 32 caliber cartridge lying nearby. Bloodstains ran out the back door and into the parking lot where they came to a stop right next to a set of tire tracks. It was evident to police that someone had shot Mary and loaded her body into a vehicle before driving off. A few weeks after Mary's disappearance, Ed got into a conversation with the local sawmill operator about Mary Hogan, to which he replied matter-of-factly that the woman wasn't missing, she was back at his farm. The sawmill owner just laughed this off as one more strange comment from crazy old Ed. Throughout the late 1940s, Wisconsin police were baffled by a series of strange disappearances throughout the state. On May 1, 1947, an eight-year-old girl named Georgia Weckler vanished from a county road near Cambridge while she was walking home from school. On November 1st, 1952, a couple of deer hunters disappeared somewhere in the woods west of Plainfield. On October 24th, 1953, a 15-year-old honor student named Evelyn Hartley was babysitting the 20-month-old daughter of a lacrosse college professor when she vanished from the home. The only evidence left behind at the scene were some bloodstains and other signs of a struggle. A few days later, authorities discovered some blood-stained girls' underwear just off Highway 41, about two miles away, 
along with a blood-stained pair of men's trousers. By the fall of 1957, Mary Hogan's mysterious disappearance had mostly faded from memory. She had a shady past, after all, and everyone just pretty much accepted that her past had finally caught up to her. On November 16, 1957, Ed Gein put on his jacket and plaid deer hunter's cap and crunched his way through the snow out to his maroon 49 Ford sedan. He picked up some kerosene at the local standard station. Then he headed over to Warden's Hardware and Implement Store on the east end of Plainfield's business district. Bernice Warden was the owner and proprietor of the shop, having inherited it when her husband died back in 1931. Her son Frank served at different times as the town constable, then most recently as the town fire marshal and deputy sheriff. Frank was out deer hunting the day Ed Gein came into his mother's shop. Mrs. Warden wasn't particularly pleased to see Ed. Lately he had been hanging around the shop a little too much and he was starting to get on her nerves. Once he'd had the gall to actually invite her out to the new roller skating rink in town. Only Bernice turned him down flat. Bernice thought Ed was little more than the village idiot and she wanted to have nothing to do with him. This time when Ed came in, he was carrying an empty jug, and he asked her if he could buy some antifreeze. She filled the jug from a steel barrel and wrote up a sales receipt after taking Ed's money. Ed left, but then almost immediately turned around and came back into the shop, this time mentioning how he was thinking of trading in his old Marlin rifle for a new 22. And could he possibly see one of the rifles hanging from the rack behind the counter? Bernice got the rifle down and passed it to Ed. While Ed looked the rifle over, Bernice wandered away, hoping he'd leave soon. She went over and looked out the front window, making some idle comment about her son-in-law's new car. With her back to him, she never noticed as Ed took a 22 caliber shell out of one of the pockets of his overalls and slid it into the rifle's chamber. Later that morning, the very same mill owner who had once had a strange conversation with Ed Gein about the location of Mary Hogan, darn near got run off the road as Ed came speeding past him way too fast in his maroon Ford. He didn't know where he was going in such an all-fired hurry, but crazy old Ed was going to kill someone if he wasn't careful. Around five that night, Frank Warden returned to town empty-handed after an unsuccessful deer hunt. A friend of his asked him why his mother wasn't at the hardware store. This immediately alarmed Frank since he knew Bernice was supposed to be there all day. He rushed to the store, and he knew right away something was terribly wrong. The cash register was missing from the counter, and the floor was stained with drying blood. Frank dialed the local sheriff, Art Schley, in Watoma, 15 miles away, and told him what he'd found. Schley picked up one of his deputies and sped to Plainfield. As soon as they got in the door to the hardware store, Frank Warden was there waiting for them. Frank told them he's done something to her. I know it. Who, they asked. Eddie Gein, Frank told them. The creepy old man had been hanging around the store and bothering his mother lately. Warden then showed the sheriff something he'd found while they were driving over. A sales slip made out to Ed Gein that day for antifreeze. The three men decided they needed to find Ed Gein immediately. More deputies were called in to secure the scene along with some crime lab investigators. They found him at the home of his nearest neighbor, the Hills. The Hills' teenage son had asked Ed to give him a ride into town to pick up a new battery after their car wouldn't start. Ed went with the deputies willingly when they told him they wanted to ask him a few questions. Back at the police station, Ed was evasive when police questioned him. He kept changing his story and almost without prompting, he told the deputies someone was trying to frame him for Mrs. Warden's murder, which struck them all as odd considering none of them knew for certain Bernice Warden was dead at that point. While Ed was being questioned, the sheriff, Art Schley, was heading over to the Gein farm to look for Bernice Warden. Like all the other locals, he'd heard the creepy stories about the place being haunted. 
but he never put much stock in such children's stories. But as he and his deputy crunched their way towards the house across the snow-covered yard, he couldn't help but feel a little creeped out by the place on this frigid winter's night. The two officers tried several doors before finding one that was unlocked, the one that led into the summer kitchen, which was only secured with a flimsy latch. Schley's deputy kicked the door in with his boot. The two men went in with their flashlights blazing. The floor of the shed was filled with rusting old junk and rotting cardboard boxes. The deputy went over and tried the door leading into the main part of the house. Art Schley took a step back and swept his flashlight across all the junk that filled the room. That was when something brushed up against his back. The sheriff spun around and the flashlight beam fell on a large white carcass hanging upside down from its feet. The head was missing, and the front of the carcass was split completely open, leaving a dark, gaping maw. At first, Art Schley thought he was staring at a pig carcass, before the full horror of what he was staring at hit him all at once. He bolted from the shed and collapsed to his knees in the snow and vomited loudly. Seconds later, his deputy came staggering out after him, gasping for breath. The two men had finally found Bernice Warden. Soon, dozens more police and other authorities were converging on the Gein farm. Bernice Warden's body was just the first horrific thing they would discover. Her body had been hung from a crude wooden crossbar. Both ends of the pole had been sharpened to a point and shoved through the tendons in one ankle. The other ankle was slit just above the heel and tied to the rod with a length of rope. Police busted into the main house through the summer kitchen. It was the first time any other living soul besides Ed himself had been inside the house in years. Being as there was no electricity, they had to light their way by a combination of flashlight and kerosene lamps. Ed Gein would have been what we describe today as a hoarder. Massive stacks of garbage were everywhere. Cardboard cartons, empty cans, tools, and stacks of newspapers and magazines filled practically every flat surface. There was so much junk packed throughout the house that it soon became evident that only a couple rooms could be used to actually live in. In fact, later, they'd all be startled to discover precisely that. Two rooms in the house remained in pristine condition with no junk or any of the other horrific things they found. These had been Augusta's favorite rooms, the parlor and her bedroom, and Ed kept them exactly the way Mother had kept them while she was still alive. Some of the junk the police found was just odd, like the row of cracked yellow dentures Ed laid out across a shelf or the wash basin that was full of sand. But as the deputies looked further, they began to find other things that were the stuff of nightmares. One of the officers noticed a strange-looking soup bowl on the kitchen table and picked it up to examine it closer. He almost immediately dropped it when he realized what it was. The sawed-off top of a human skull. Throughout the house, they found several more skull caps and a number of complete human skulls. Ed Gein, it turns out, was quite the decorator. A set of four kitchen chairs had been reupholstered with strips of human skin that was still lumpy with fat on the underside. They found a wastebasket made from human skin as well, and a lampshade that added crafted out of a human face. A pair of female lips was attached to a window shade drawstring. It would take weeks to dig through all the junk, and it seemed like everywhere investigators turned, they found some new horror. They would eventually find Bernice Warden's severed head in a burlap sack, along with her heart that he had stored in a plastic bag inside his pot-bellied stove. Soon authorities would realize that not only had Ed Gein murdered Bernice Warden, but he was also responsible for the murder of Mary Hogan a few years earlier. 
This became clear when they discovered Mary Hogan's skull in a box and an actual mask Ed had crafted from the skin of Mary's face. As I mentioned earlier, Ed had become fascinated with the idea of becoming a woman, but the closest he ever came to doing anything about it was by dressing up as one in a female skin suit he'd made for himself. It turns out the shrunken heads Ed's young neighbor had seen years earlier were actually several face masks Ed made out of real human faces. There was also a full corset made from a female torso that had been skinned from shoulders to waist. A belt made from human nipples. A pair of leggings made from human leg skin. Nine vulva were discovered in a shoebox. Ed would sometimes wear the female genitalia over his own genitals. They would also find a young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females that were later estimated to be about 15 years old. Ed would later confess to wearing many of these parts and prancing around in the dark in order to know what it felt like to be a woman just like his dearly departed mother. As more and more body parts were discovered, Wisconsin police investigators began to wonder if Ed may have been responsible for any of the mysterious disappearances, like that of young Evelyn Hartley years earlier. The evidence that Ed may have been responsible for the other crimes I mentioned earlier is thin, but not completely out of the question. In the case of Evelyn Hartley, it's known that Ed was in La Crosse visiting an aunt on the very same night Evelyn disappeared. In the case of Georgia Weckler, tire tracks were found at the location where the eight-year-old girl disappeared that matched the same model car Ed drove. And in the case of the two missing hunters, well, they actually both vanished in the woods near Plainfield. And it's known that Ed would sometimes get really angry when trespassers set foot on his property. But Ed always denied ever committing any other murders. He swore up and down that he got most of his body parts by visiting local cemeteries and digging up fresh corpses. Between 1947 and 1952, Ed told police he had made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local cemeteries to exhume recently buried bodies in order to add to his macabre collection. On many of these occasions, Ed claimed to have returned home empty-handed. He also claimed that most of the time when he made these trips, his mind faded into a sort of fugue state where he couldn't recall his actions. It's not known for certain just how many graves Ed actually robbed, nor can we be certain how many people he actually murdered. The bodies of at least 15 different women had been used to create as many trophies. Although rumors of necrophilia became rampant, Ed swore he never had sex with any of the bodies because they smelled too bad. Then there were the stories of cannibalism. Ed denied that he ever ate any of his victims, but several horrified townspeople realized that on more than one occasion, Ed had given gifts of fresh venison to his neighbors. Although once he was in custody, Ed claimed he never shot a deer in his life. Officially, we can only confirm Ed was responsible for the murders of Bernice Warden and Mary Hogan. Ed denied having anything to do with any of the other many disappearances that occurred throughout Wisconsin over the past few years, adding that the only time he ever traveled more than a few miles away from Plainfield was the one time he drove 130 miles to take his physical for the draft. Although we know this is a lie since it's known he would sometimes visit his aunt in La Crosse, which is where he was in the night Evelyn Hartley vanished. Even though Ed never confessed to any other murders, they found among his personal effects many newspaper clippings about dozens of unsolved disappearances throughout the state, including that of Evelyn Hartley. Even after the contents of the farmhouse had all been removed, human remains would continue to be discovered on the farm. In November of 1957, the charred remains of another woman were found in an ash pit behind Ed's house. Yet another set of human remains was discovered in a garbage pit. 
Even as recently as 1995, the remains of 10 more unidentified females and one male were discovered in an old well on the Gein property. During his questioning, Sheriff Art Schley reportedly went berserk and smashed Ed's face and head into a brick wall. This caused the trial judge to render Ed's confession as inadmissible. Schley was forever traumatized by what he found inside Ed Gein's house. He died of heart failure in 1968. One of his closest friends went on to describe Art Schley as Ed Gein's last victim. On November 21, 1957, Ed Gein was arraigned on a single count of first-degree murder for the death of Bernice Warden, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge found him mentally incompetent and sent him to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. There, he proved to be a model patient who never gave anyone any trouble. And in 1968, his doctors declared Ed competent to stand trial. He was finally convicted of Bernice Warden's murder and was returned to the Central State Hospital. He was later transferred to the Mendola State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, where he died on July 26, 1984, at age 77. Ed's story became a media sensation. Newspapers dubbed him the Butcher of Plainfield. Something like this had never happened before in Wisconsin history, and suddenly the sleepy little village of Plainfield, where nothing ever happened, became synonymous with one of the worst horror stories in memory. Newspaper reporters flooded the town, and stories of what Ed Gein did made news all around the world. Some of those stories caught the imagination of a young thriller writer named Robert Block, who was inspired by the story of Ed Gein to write his own tale, of a mentally disturbed motel owner named Norman Bates, with an unhealthy obsession with his mother, and a gift for taxidermy. After he was sent away to the mental institution, Ed Gein's property was scheduled to be auctioned off on March 30, 1958. Rumors spread that someone was looking to buy the property to turn it into a tourist attraction. Just three days before the property was due to go up for sale, a mysterious fire burned the house to the ground. Arson, of course, was suspected, but never proven. Ed Gein's car, which he'd used to transport some of the bodies, was sold at public auction to a carnival sideshow owner named Bunny Gibbons for $760. Gibbons put the car on display and charged 25 cents a head to see it. Ed Gein's story has been adapted into several feature films and documentaries. He's also the inspiration for plenty of modern horror films beyond Psycho, including, among others, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Silence of the Lambs. Over the years, many souvenir seekers visited Ed's grave site in Plainfield Cemetery and chipped away pieces of the headstone. That continued until the stone was stolen in the year 2000. Police recovered the stone in June of 2001, and afterwards it was placed in police storage where it's remained ever since. Ed Gein's gravesite is unmarked, but since he was buried right next to his beloved mother, it's not hard to find. Visitors still come from miles around to leave cards and flowers on Ed Gein's grave. In death, it seems, Ed isn't lonely anymore. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale. Thanks for listening to this special extra-long episode of the show. I want to thank James for becoming a new Patreon supporter. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. I also wanted to remind you that we have a store where you can purchase a lot of the same merchandise as well. You can also help us support the show by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app, as well as our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>